invite you to turn in your Bibles to the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. And this has been a challenge. This gospel is unique in terms of its differences, and yet its um, uh, connection to the the, uh, synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Much time has elapsed. Of course, the Apostle John is the human author here. John is very well aware of all of the uh, other Gospels. They have been circulating for perhaps even a couple of decades. He's still alive, the last of the remaining 12. And he has been um, put upon by the Lord to write this Gospel through others who in his day and time suggested that he do so to clarify perhaps something else. In their words, uh, John, why don't you write a spiritual Gospel? And John did an amazing job with this Gospel, with the Gospel of John and how it is the self-revelation of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, the Christ has come. And out of the gate, he challenges us when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We have so much information right out of the gate when we first started this gospel. In the beginning was, you can't get past that without realizing the eternality of who he's about to introduce us to. Whoever it is, it's the only being that we know of that's eternal, Well, this same Logos, this same Word of God was with God, making himself distinct from God in that sense. So this is a distinction from the God of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit that we know. So we know that there's more than one member to this being that's eternal. He's unfolding so much just in this first verse. And the Word, what? Was God, there's deity. They can't even get past the first page, and they know a whole lot about the Son of God, Messiah, who has come. And then, of course, he reaffirms that in verse 2. It begins with the word he. So now we have personhood, capital P. This is a person who is in relationship, in an eternal relationship, that is deity. We get that In the first verse and the first word of the second verse, he was in the beginning with God. There's the distinction. There's the relationship within the Godhead that we fully understand now because of not only this gospel, but the rest of the teaching in the the New Testament about who God is, our theology proper. This is an amazing book, but I'll tell you, it's a difficult one to treat responsibly because it's so much different from the other Gospels, because it's way different than an epistle. We've gone through the epistles. We've gone through Acts, the history of the church. So much um, simpler in order to exegete those things. What we have here is massive. We have the revelation of one who is infinite and eternal. In other words, you can't measure his distance, and you can't mark time by his existence. And then we went 
on from there. We found out that life is in him. All things were made through him. This is the agency that Christ had, that Jesus had in the very beginning, in the very beginning, Genesis 1, 1, and going forward, the agency of all things that were created were created through him. Just remarkable. In him was life, verse 4, and the life was the light of men. What? The phos became the leucos of men. It became the lamp, the light, the source of all light became the source that lights the lamp of light within men, the light of life. There's so much to wrap your mind around here. Light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. Verse five. Massive already. And then Last time, we went through verse 6 and following because it takes a little bit of an excursus, a little bit of a, of a sidebar on who the John, ba- John the Baptist is, and it's made very clear that he is not the light. He came as a witness to the light. The, the word light is used five times right up until our text this morning, beginning in verse 9 and going through 13. Let's read that now. Verse 9, the true light, okay, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Father, thank you so much. You've given us a very full plate again. There's so much here. So much here. You know, O Lord, personally, intimately, of my own wrestlings this week with these texts since we've begun. I pray, O Lord, above all, these things would be treated with the reverence they deserve, that the preaching would be accurate, that a people of God assembled here today, and perhaps some who don't know you, would see you in this self-revelation. Open their hearts, O Lord. We need you to open our hearts so that we can see, so that we can understand, so that we, above all, most importantly, will believe. This we ask in your holy name. Amen. So our job, this is an evangelistic enterprise. This gospel is all about evangelism. When we see that with the John the Baptist, who is a witness to the light, that's tag, we're it. That's us now. We are a witness to these things. We see it at the outset of the history of the church in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, you're going to go out now. And you're going to be a witness for me. And that leads to us today. That's who we are. That's what we're engaged in. Verse 8 says, uh, the gospel ministry is to bear witness about the light. So that's us in a capsule. And that's what we do. Now, I've broken this down. There's five verses into five points that we'll make from those verses. We better get started. There's a lot here. First of all, the light of divine truth has come in the person of Jesus Christ. The light of divine truth. Those are pretty much synonymous in most of its uses, that the light is truth. And you'll know why 
the further we go from verse 9. The light of divine truth has come. He's come into the world is how the text puts it. He's coming into the world and the way he comes into the world as a light. A light exposes the reality of things. It chases away the darkness. A darkness, a deep darkness, as Isaiah was prophesying, a deep darkness that that blinds the people. It's blinding. This shaft, this Shekinah glory has now shined in and broken in on that darkness. That's what we're seeing here. Verse 9, the true light. The true light. This is, you could say, the light of truth. Why does he need to say that? Because what we've been immersed in is a lie. It's fake. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. What that's another way of saying is this is the incarnation. He's here. The long-awaited one. The anointed one. Messiah is here. Remarkable. Isaiah, I mentioned Isaiah, Isaiah 49, 6, for instance, says, this is speaking to his servant with a capital S, this, this servant who is going to be the Christ. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Amazing statement, 700 years before Christ would appear as a man. 700 years. Or in Isaiah 9, 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. This is what's happening here. In the plain, ordinary arrival of a baby, uh, looks f- fully human to us. It cries, it's hungry, all of those things that constitute an ordinary human life. And yet there's those, the announcement from the angel and so on. There's, there's wise men that come and all the rest of it that we celebrate at Christmas time. They've seen a great light. Those who dwelt, and that's why this is repeated, by the way, in the Gospels, isn't it? Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. I can see what I couldn't see before. But this is a a spiritual exercise, isn't it? Light, we understand physical light, photons and so forth. It comes in ways, it travels, it the speed of 186, over 186,000 miles per second. Light years in the trillions of miles. Just an amazing thing. But this is spiritual. So these things are spiritualized, this darkness, this deep darkness. Into that a light has come. That's the incarnation. He was coming into the world. So now we look at the New Testament. What does John have to say in his first epistle? Well, 1 John 2.8 says, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. See how that relates? That's a fulfillment of, of prophecy, isn't it? He understands that, especially at, at, at this late date. I mean, he's... he's mused over these things for some years now after all the rest of the apostles have been gone. The true light, true alethanos. There's a number of words for uh, true and truth. This is alethanos in this case. It's spoken of what is true in itself. It's genuine. It's real. It's authentic. That's what this word means, as opposed to what's false or fake 
or a pretense of something. It pretends. It looks like it's real. It sounds like it's real, but it's not. Why does it come close to the truth? Because that has the most success of deceiving, right? That's what this came to challenge. And so that we find in John 8 where Jesus is defining another being. And this is the false. Here's how he defines Satan. John 8.44, you are the father of the devil. He's indicting them, the religious ones, who are dead and blind in the functionality of their religious movements. Dead and blind men filled with dead men's bones. He was a murderer, he goes on, from the beginning and has nothing to do. He has nothing to do with the truth. So he's incapable to ever even speak anything that's the truth. If he does, it's happenstance. He stumbled over it. Nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. So you can see the direct counterpart. The, contra, the contradistinction that he has from the true light. And that's what John is letting us know. The true light has come. He's come into this world, into this darkness, was, was created by the devil himself, the fallenness of man and the fallenness of the world, right? There's no truth in him. When he lies, he goes on, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar, and the father of all lies. He's the progenitor of every lie that was ever propagated. Every one. He commends lying. He condones it. He, he prompts it. He loves to spawn lies. He loves to see when deception is rife in the world. And we see what it's doing in our day, don't we? And it's a growing darkness, isn't it? So I'd say this has some severe relevancy to our time, wouldn't you? It most certainly does. He's the father of all lies. So Satan, it says in 2 Corinthians 11, you talk about the, the, the fake, the counterfeit of Christ. Satan disguises himself, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen and 15. He disguises himself. You see, that's the false front. That's the facade. That's the opposite of aletheia or alethanos, those words that describe truth, that which is genuine, real, authentic. He disguises himself as what? Angel of light, here's your light. You want the light? Here it is. What does he know to appeal to in us? Our pride, our fallenness. In pride. This is, this, doesn't this look more enticing? Oh, yeah, I can see how that would benefit me. Didn't our first mother say that in the garden? Oh, he just doesn't want you to benefit from this, that's all. Go ahead, help yourself. You're not going to surely die. Don't get dramatic. He's a liar, he's a deceiver. He would minimize the effects of our entering into lie. He invites us, he entices us. Come on in, the water's fine. You're going to benefit from this. Look at how I promote all of those in your culture. Look at, the, look at the celebrities. Look at all of those who are rich, wealthy, famous, gifted, talented. Shouldn't that point to what's real to you? Is it fake? 
So it's no surprise, he goes on to say, that if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, that's how they come in. That's how the false teachers come in. That's how any false idea is perpetrated is as a servant of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So the text sends next that the true light, which enlightens everyone. So there's a sense in which this there's been a general light. You could say the, um, uh, the common revelation of God in all of the created order. He, he, he reveals himself externally through that which is created. Romans 1, 20 says, For his, invi- in, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are what? They can't say, I didn't know who you were. I didn't know I'd have somebody to answer to. It enlightens everybody. He has the capability of doing that not only externally but internally, doesn't he? There's a law written in the hearts of all men, all mankind. We see that, of course, showing up um, in Romans 2 and verse 15. So morally, internally, through the consciences that he's given, the the, uh, faculties that he's been given mankind to know, you know what, this is just wrong. I'm not going to say anything because I benefit from all this. I have an agenda here. So let's all band together a consortium of deceivers. We're going to learn that word, folks. Just get used to it. It's a good word. They, they band together. So as maybe in the, in the greater numbers, we would legitimize what we're, what we're perpetrating here. So internally, the consciences are saying, hmm, this isn't right. As long as the conscience isn't altogether seared, because the conscience can be misinformed or properly biblically informed. But he's given every human being the knowledge of two things, that there is a God and that there will be an accounting. Those two things. We work with that when we're trying to evangelize somebody. Start with what's common among every human being. Because only a fool has said what? There's no God, right? We, we would prefer that in a pagan state. But there is one and they all know it. Secondly, verse 10, the creator now appearing unrecognized by his own creation. Understand what's going on here. The one who created All things and anything that was ever made was made by him or was not made. Right? He shows up here, verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him, the agency of Christ in creation. Yet the world did not know him. I like this sort of rhetorical tool that he does here. He mentions world three times. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He's a rhetorician. He knows how to write. He knows how to make a point. We haven't even gotten out of the prologue, folks. This is amazing. 
this threefold mention of the world, it stands again in contradistinction to the threefold mention of the word in the beginning. The word, the world itself owes its very existence to the word. That's the irony here. And so for them to say, and you are um, like I'm your creator. I created all this. Hmm, I, doesn't ring a bell. He was in the world. So he was in the world. And the verb com- conjures up the idea of, of continuity. He was in the world. He, he was in the world from the beginning and never left being involved with the upholding of all things, as Hebrews 1 puts it, right? Why is that necessary? Why does he have to stay with what he's created? Why does he have to uphold it by the word of his power, as Hebrews says? Because in him was. Who's with me? What? Life. In him was life. He walks away. Everything drops. Dead as a doornail. He is life. Not only he gives life, he is life. He makes people who are spiritually dead and blind, like the one you're looking at, he brings them life. He illuminates things so that I'm not under delusion, self-delusion and deception. That's the great darkness. That shaft of light has come in. It's amazing. So Hebrews 1.3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's just amazing. So without his constant attendance, everything falls out of existence. It's just dust, gray matter. And then this, the world did not know him. How is that possible? How is that possible? I know this just came to mind, so if it doesn't work. I'll blame it on that. I, I just, I, it just conjured up Pinocchio and Geppetto, right? Geppetto walks, in, yeah. Geppetto walks into the room. Hey, Pinocchio, do I know you? <laughs> How absurd is that? This is like a thousand times more in its absurdity. We have to get. How ridiculous this is. The world did not know him. Gnosko in the Greek, to know, to know. They failed to recognize their own creator, the whole world. More than knowing. This word means more than knowing. It has to do with more than that. It's, it, it implies a relationship. So there's a relationship there. It's not just knowledge. It's, there's a relationship. And the more you dig into this word, the more you find out how utterly without excuse they are for denying to know him. They should know him. We are, in fact, image bearers of who? Of God. He showed up as a man to make that easy for us to recognize. That's him. That's him. I would have loved to seen somebody who actually, who God had sent that shaft of light all the way into their heart and illuminated who he was, like John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one I told you about, the one who I'm unworthy to even tie the laces on his sandals. This is him. 
and they did not know him. You can't recognize the one in whose image you bear. Talk about without excuse. This is a, a, a failure of intimacy. It's that kind of knowledge. To know and love as a friend. Third, verse 11. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and this should really break our hearts, is rejected by his own people. So not only does the world fail to recognize the one that they should just love and adore, recognize as soon as he shows up, but his own people, his own people, verse 11, he came to his own. It's like coming to the hometown. And his own people, that's like your family, did not receive him. Think about that. And this is much, again, much, much worse But that's the concept in miniature. Going to your home where everybody knew you. They they know who you are, and they're acting like you never existed. It's like one of those Twilight Zone episodes. Who are you? Wait a second, Joe. It's me. Don't know you. Don't know. In his own hometown. In, in, in his own Jewish people who came from his line to the line of David. So this is different than just the world. This is far worse. This is his own family. These are his own people. This is Israel, the nation that he set apart above all other nations. I'm going to set my love on you, not because you're bigger than anybody else, not because you're more special. As a matter of fact, you aren't. You're a dot on the map. But because I decided to fix my love on you, he shows up and they say, I don't know you. This word receive. Let's start with he came to his own. It could be translated, he came to his own possession. How about that? You're mine. How many times does he say that in the Old Testament? You're mine. You're mine. And they reject him and reject him and reject him. Even in the Old Testament, right? He uses marital terms. That's powerful intimacy. That's powerful love. But it's possession. You belong to me. You reject my son. You reject your only hope for salvation. It doesn't make any logical sense, that's for sure. It's it's like not only he came into his own possession, he came into his own home. It's a fair translation of that idea. They didn't receive him. You show up at your doorstep and you're not received. They reject you. You suspect they do know who you are but they don't want to know you anymore. And you're put out. That's the idea. This same expression is used in John 19, 27, where John, or Jesus rather, from the cross said to John, Behold your mother. Remember that? Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Uh, This is 
powerful. This is very intimate. This is loving possession. I'm going to take your mother and make her my mother. That's what's bound up in that idea. Did not receive him. Can you imagine? A child who, for whatever reason, according to their own sinful acts in their relationship with their father, became estranged from him. No fault of his in this case. He's a good man. He's a nice man. But this child is a sinful person. And that sin caused the estrangement to the father. And so this child is an adult finds out, didn't even know if the father was still alive. But the father is still alive. And he comes back to see his son. What should he do? Kind of like a prodigal son moment, yeah? What did they do? If, if that doesn't break our hearts, I wonder what would. So he's not going to some other country. He's going to his own home, and they did not receive him. Paralambano. Paralambano in the Greek, receive. It's not only used as a teacher or an instructor that you learn from and follow like a rabbi. It's also taken a person to oneself in intimate fellowship. It's used in both of those ways. It's used of, of Joseph, for instance, when he uh, decided to marry Mary, his wife. And Christ taking the believers back in, uh, in 14.3 where he's taking the believers with him to heaven. I'm building a place for you. Do you think there would be any possible way or reason why he would reject you when you got there? Those doors are going to be thrown wide open. And you will be embraced in a way you never could have experienced on this earth. Never will he reject you. All those that the Father has given me, I will what? Lose none. They are mine. I gave my life for them. That's how much I love them. Turn that around. Put him to death. Put him to death. So in other words, they would not abide him so they did not obey him. I think I kept that in your notes. That's the idea. We're not, I don't want to be around you. I don't want to invite you into my life. I, I don't want to abide with you, and I will not obey you. So bought into the lie, so created this life, and had it underwritten by the father of all lies. Oh, you want more. You want this. You want that. Here, I'll give it to you. What did he offer Jesus in the temptation? Like everything. Whatever you want. It's all yours. They would not abide with him. 
You wonder, as a Christian, how somebody could not receive him, how somebody could not just take delight in obeying him. Show me, Lord, what you want. I, I love you. I want to say something that I can't ever guarantee, but I would follow you anywhere. That's what my heart says. But the flesh is weak. Even though this mind is willing, I want to make statements like that. That's how it should be, should it? Number four, verse 12. All those who receive Jesus as the Christ receive adoption as children of God. We turn a big corner here. Verse 12, the word but. Big transition there. But all who did receive him. He was unrecognizable to the world, rejected in his own home by his own people. But all those who did receive them, when he showed up and they said, that's the Messiah, that's him. I recognize it from the comprehensive description we have of him in our scriptures. He can't be denied all who did receive him, who believed in his name. Remember, this gospel is a, 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 an evangelical enterprise. This is all about the gospel. This is all about evangelism from chapter 1 to 21, the whole thing, that you would believe. Chapter 20, verse 31, remember? These things are written for that purpose, John wrote, for that very exclusive purpose, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, and he gave the right to become children of God. This reminded me of Galatians 4, doesn't it? Verse 4 to 7, talking about this adoption there. Verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So this is the true light coming into the world, yeah? Shows up as a baby. Born of a woman, born under the law, to, for what purpose? To redeem those who are under the law. They're guilty. Jesus didn't come to say, tell you how guilty you are. We do that to ourselves for some weird reason. No, he came to bring grace, right? He came to show us a way that that could be reconciled born under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. How wild is that? And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is glorious. So you are no longer a slave, but a what? So maybe we should stop acting like a slave. Maybe we should act like a son who's been given sonship for how much? What did it cost us? Nothing. Just believe. Just believe. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, he's not done. He's not done. Then an heir through God. Satan on this fallen planet says, I'll give you all of this. Jesus shows up as the true life saying, 
I will give you all of this. And they still reject him. It doesn't make any sense. To all, underscore, all who would receive him. Who believed in his name. So the overarching goal of the revelation we find of Jesus Christ in the fourth gospel is for that purpose. That we would believe who he is as he reveals himself. We see them in the gospel that rejected him and we see those that received him and followed him. Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Synonymous with what? Belief. Which we should also add, trust. On that day when you are ready to go be with the Lord, you trust him, don't you? And in nothing else. You won't point to your church attendance and as awesome as that music was, I can't point to how spiritual that was. I'd like to. I think it should count for something. Going to France and teaching biblical counseling, all the rest of it, none of that will matter. I will be clinging to my Christ, the one who came personally to die for my personal sins, my choices to live contrary to the God who created me. So the giver is the gift. That's how it turns out, isn't it? The giver is the gift. How remarkable is that? He gave. Does that remind you of a place in Scripture uh, further on in John? He gave. What does it remind you of? What chapter? Here we go. Hang on. You're right. He gave. So the end of the story is not one of tragedy and rejection. It's one of embracing and acceptance. It's one of grace. It's not one of alienation. It's one of possession. He gave. So let's look at John three sixteen to 21. For God so loved the world. You could probably recite this, right? That, what's the next two words? He gave. His only son. I only got one. He's only coming once. That whoever believes in him, there's the belief, that's the part. We must believe. Should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. It's already been done, hasn't it? But in order that the world might by, be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. That's the conundrum we have. Because he is not has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world. We are without excuse. And people love the darkness rather than the light. Oh, is that why they choose to stay in the darkness? Because their what? Deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things, now he's now this is starting. Now we understand. Everyone who does wicked things hates the life, the light, 
they hate the light. There's a reason that bars are dark. There's a reason that there's a lot of alcohol flowing. Because you have to bludgeon the image of God before you can do the things that you do. And I don't want to see it. I don't want to be reminded that there's other image bearers around me. I want people painted up. I want the music loud. And I want the liquor to flow so that I don't have to think about reality. The music's too loud. It's too, this is a gayest event. This is, this is joy. This is happiness. That's why they call it happy hour, yeah? <laughs> the father of all lies. He's a liar. I bought into that lie. Nearly lost my life. It's all fake. It's a counterfeit. And you have to bludgeon the image of God in you to be able to do some of the things that unbelievers do. He gave what? He gave the right. This is an authorization. He gave the right. He's imparting to us by His authority a new status. That's what this is. You're no longer a slave. You're my son. That's what takes place here. The old things. If anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, help me with this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a, a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. That's why I included the first part of verse 18. We should always include that. This is from God. But God, we are the children. The techna in the Greek. It's not yuyos. It is techna. This is a, a child, a son or a daughter. John reserves uyos for the son of God typically. So we're part of a community now. We're bound together by the Holy Spirit. Pay no attention to that wasp. They're in here every week when it's warm. Five. Verse 13. Who do you think sent that wasp, you guys? <laughs> Have you been listening? Salvation, not of man, but of God. This is, this is where we bring this thing to a conclusion, isn't it? Verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Who were born... This should make sense to us because if I'm a new creation and I'm a techna, I'm a, I'm a child now, a child of God, I had to have been born. Simple. Uh, a new child must be born. So we, Nick, you know, uh, Nicodemus marveled over that. He had trouble with that. He struggled. It. How, what? Well, let me just read it. We're, we have to be, it's not of blood. It's, so in other words, it's not of blood. That can uh, be, be being used in a twofold way, either one way or another, or maybe a combination of both. We'll have to ask John when we see him. But he's 
most likely referring to ancestry. You can't point to that you're a child of Abraham. He points that out to them, right? Yeah. And it also, at the same time, can be referring to physical childbirth. This is not going to happen. We're not talking about a physical birth here. That's usually accompanied by some amount of blood. But most particularly, I'm sure he's referring to ancestry for sure. So we have to be born from above. John 3 again to Nicodemus. Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Tie that to the clause we just cited. Not of blood. Not of the flesh. It's not the, of the blood or the will of the flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So this is a spiritual endeavor. It's going to happen in a spiritual way. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear this, its sound, but you do not know where it comes from. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nor is it of the will of the flesh. Because the flesh has fallen, therefore the fallen flesh is opposed to the things of the Spirit. So it can't be because of the flesh. It can't be me. It, it can't be us that gets us there, that sees light. Galatians 5.17 For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. You may want to do them as a newborn believer, but you find yourself not doing it because it's in competition with your fallen flesh that wants to do other things that please me, that please us. Romans 8, 7-9, similar idea. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to the laws of God. So how is it that that flesh is going to uh, get uh, inspired to take me to the cross? It's opposed to God. Romans 5 says that we're the enemies of God before God saves us. Indeed, it cannot so the flesh cannot because it's hostile to God. Verse 8 of Romans 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. There goes that idea of going to a second blessing and receiving the Holy Spirit. You have him when you're born again. Because God does this, because God has to. We can't. We can't do that. Nor of the will of man. So not my flesh is never going to will that because my flesh has fallen. But nor will my own will itself, my heart, ever desire that. It never will. I'm the enemy of God. I live that way. I prove that by ignoring him as I go along in life and live my life my way. It's not by sheer force of will that you're going to do this. It has to be the intervention of God, doesn't it? Because man's heart is spiritually dead. It's spiritually 
dead. So it's not by human effort in any way. I can't point to a lineage, some line that goes back to King David. My flesh never really will desire it. I want to live my own way. I don't want to follow Jesus as an unbeliever. He has to do that. He has to send that same true light into my heart so that I can see my sin fallen condition, be horrified and cry out to God for salvation. Have mercy on me. Have mercy, O God. That was literally my experience. Crying out in New York City, God, help me. He answered. He answered. Why do we make this complicated? It's not. We make things complicated so we can stall for time, so we can satiate the flesh a little more. We shouldn't do that. And then the three most important words in the entire passage, but of God. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, you're familiar with it. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us what? Alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, he said this is exactly what would happen when he said, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I, I, I will do that. I will do that. I don't do that. I muck things up. That's what I do in my flesh. He has to do it. And why? Why is that? So he gets the glory. I'm going down. This is Jesus. To retrieve souls that belong to me. I love them. In the most profound sense of intimacy, I will do anything, everything, for them, I will pay the price for their sins. I will do it. I will come and I will break in on that darkness that has them paralyzed, that has them shackled, unable to set themselves free. How dark was that darkness? One more passage. We come from Isaiah 42 then to Colossians 1, 12 to 14. We give thanks to the Father who has qualified. Here's that authorization again. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love. Who has done it? Who did it? He did. So what do the dead and blind people in our lives need us to be doing? Pray. Pray and pray again. And don't stop praying. My brother prayed seven years for me. I found out later on. Seven years he prayed. He didn't quit. And I thanked him. I still thank him for that. 
Because of you, you've cracked open the door to let that shaft of light come in and it delivered me from my darkness. Darkness that I didn't even know was darkness because it'd be like asking a fish to describe the experience of water. What, this is darkness? Let me show you what I got. Let me show you what I get to do. Lies. Self-delusion. And he breaks in because he loves us And he transfers us out of that dungeon and that darkness and transfers us, he does it, into the son of his love. That's the literal rendering. His beloved son, the son of his love. In whom we have, verse 14, what? What do we have in him? This is our celebration before we take communion. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of of sins. Brother, thanks for taking us through Amazing Grace. I can't think of a better... Can you think of a better song to have sung? Providentially? God appointing that? There's a Victorian English playwright who wrote... uh, His name's Lawrence Hausman. He reveals something of the wonder of everything we're talking about here. Light looked down and beheld darkness. Thither will I go, said light. Peace looked down and beheld war. Thither will I go, said peace. Love looked down. (laughs) How does one who is pure in love look down at A world rife with hatred. Love looked down and beheld hatred. Thither will I go, said love. So came light and shone. So came peace and gave rest. So came love and brought life. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That, my friends, is for next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thanks is hardly enough. No, Lord, we we give you our lives. Thank you for saving our lives. Help us, Lord, in our pathetic attempts on our own to follow you to glory. Lord, I know that you will help us. We thank you for the magnanimous gift of eternal life. Thank you for shining that light into our hearts. And I pray, O Lord, together with these brothers and sisters, if there's anyone here who finds these things strange, and maybe today you've opened up their hearts and shown even a sliver of your light, that they would open wide their hearts to receive you, even as your own people had rejected you. For this is eternal life. It is by grace that we are saved. Thank you. Thank you, O Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.